0: Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in current. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut and who Whoever heard such beautiful words? Hadunabecho, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Gabra with Jewish History Soundbites, and uh, this episode is going to be the next installment on our Hassam Cipher series, part three, and it's going to focus primarily on his Rabbinate in Pressburg, Pressburg today Bratislava in Slovakia, then Pressburg at the heart of the Habsburg uh, Austrian Empire. Um, and uh, oh. after a long hiatus, too long, long Yamtiv holiday season hiatus here. Um, but we're back with the Chsam Soifers, actually, just his yard site um, just the other day, so it's very appropriate. Part two is by his birthday. Part three is right after his yard site. We're continuing with the Chassam Soifer. And of course, there are further episodes still available to learn about the life and legacy and times and leadership of Rabbi Seifer, Soifer, Schreiber Soifer, the great Chassam Soifer, leader of Hungarian Jewry in the modern era and the father of Orthodoxy. So we're going to talk about um, him in Pressburg, his community, his relationship with his community, how he got appointed the yeshiva that he opened there. I want to open up with just uh, some letters of feedback about um, part two, the last episode, which was way long ago, before Yantiv, about, I don't know, a month ago or so. Um, I got a letter from someone, uh, letter, letter is email, I'm just old-fashioned, um, from someone, a few of them were about, I'll, I'll say before that, a few of them were about um, I mentioned about how the Chassam Sefer was a misnaget, he was opponent to the Hasidic movement, um, and they got a lot of uh, feedback about it. I think one day we'll have um, an episode just about that, devoted to the topic, because I see that a lot of people enjoy it, and it's an important subject for everyone, especially with all the revisionism today, making him retroactively into a chassid, and definitely um, how he is revered by the Hasidic community in our contemporary society. Um, so it's you know, obviously going to be tough to grapple with the fact that he was a uh, misnagid. So a few of the letters address that point. So I'm going to read, um, uh, we'll see, one or two of them. At least we'll see how, how, how long it takes. One point, though, I must strongly object to is that the Chesam soifer, soifer, you said something like, was somewhat a misnagid. What Nusuch did the Chesam Soifer personally pray in? Nusuch Arizal. When he was called to Davin as the Shliach Tzibor, then the Chassam Seifer Davin the Moreover, the chasam Seifer has a tshuva on the distribution of Chalukah in Yerushalayim. The chasam Seifer over there makes a comment regarding Hasidim and Misnagdim equally sharing Chalukah money. This is not a Misnagdic view. So that's one letter. Um, I'm going to read a second one before I respond. Another letter writer I was very surprised that you called the Chesam a Misnaget. I understand that the Chesam Sefer had concerns about certain customs of Hasidim, but that does not label him in general as a Misnaget to Hasidim and Hasidus. The Chesam Sefer actually quotes the Tanya in his Sefer, and it is quite obvious that he studied Hasidus. There are many sources that the Chesam was involved in the study of Hasidus and its minhagim. So um, I, I I want to clarify. And the, first of all, I mean, there's no question about it that he was a masnaked. There are tens and tens of sources for it. He he writes it in every other tshuva about the new Hasidim and changing custom. And and I mean, there's no, there's not nothing to talk about. If you if anyone has read uh, the, both the history seriously and Chassam own writing seriously, you'll see it all over the place. So that and like I said, it 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 I will hopefully devote an entire episode to it one day and we can talk about it. I just want to address these points here. You notice the first letter writer wrote about his personal Nusach, Harizal, which is which is complicated. It's something that we can get back to. What he did what did he pray personally? It definitely had nothing to do with the Hasidus of the Balcem, it had to do with the fact that he was a student of Rabnas Nasan Adler, which is the old type of Hasid, which is a good topic in its own right, when we talk about, eventually, one of these episodes, we'll also talk about the Chassam Seifer's youth and his relationship with Reb Nossin Adler and what the whole situation was in Frankfurt uh, between Reb Adler and the established community and his unique customs and how the community responded to his little group there, of which the Chassam Seifer was a upstanding member. Um, so that's... That's point one. The second thing is that Chesam Sefer was pro the distribution of, equal distribution among Hasidim and Misnagdim of Chalukah money in the old Yishuv. I, I don't see why that's a Misnagdic, that's not a Misnagdic view. The Chassam Sefer was a fair person. He was a Yeki from Frankfurt. Why wouldn't he be pro equal Chalukah? Um, and then the second letter um, about him studying Tanya and Hasidus. Of course, why wouldn't he study Tanya and Hasidus? The point of, of the the his Hisnagdis was changing from local custom. This is what he fought about his whole life. And anyone who separates from the established community, anyone who changes local custom, in the social sense of Hasidus, not in what he davened, not in 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 what he studied in the Torah he studied, it has nothing to do with anything. We're talking about Chasidis in the communal sense, in the in the social sense of 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 what Seifer stood for and uh, and and the cohesiveness of the Jewish community in the face of the onslaught of modernity and the political changes and the reform, and all that. So he wanted a strong traditional response of not changing, not changing custom. And what were, what was the Hasidic movement representing? Changing custom, changing the establishment, changing everything. So the Ksam Sefer was simply opposed to that, and it's very understandable, and there's nothing to get excited about. Um, but I, I get, like I said again, it's something that uh, we can go back to. There's uh, another letter here, uh, on a different topic of the Chassam Sefer, which I mentioned in the last episode. Uh, he says, uh, First of all, regarding Chadash Asram and Hatayra, relating to a Chumrah, I don't think that the Chassam Sefer would have an issue with a Chumrah psak per se, which was not in accordance with the prevailing custom, in a vacuum. I think that in light of the defense needed to protect from change on the left, it necessitated a complete no-change approach, even from the right. Better staying with the complete status quo than risk any change. Of course, I agree with this letter writer completely. That's exactly what the Chassam Cypher was saying. And I guess I should have been more clear when I stated as such in the previous episode. And here's one last one from a, 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 a quite a, a proficient Talmud Chacham and rabbi who um, listens to the uh, podcast and responded to me. It was very nice of him. Um, he he writes as follows, "...you referred to the Chazam Soifer instructing his students not to oppose the local custom in favor of their own more stringent rulings. Attached to you will find a teshuva where the Chazam Soifer himself, as the rabbi of Matazdorf, allowed a lenient local custom in Hilchas Trefus to continue, even though he opposed it and considered it halachically incorrect." When he went to Preshburg, he imposed a more stringent practice on the shochtim there, as per his own p'sak. It is fascinating, though, to see the way the Chassam answered this question, which concludes an enormous kula, which is which is exactly the point that we were saying before. And uh, like I mentioned in part two, in, in part two in the last episode, this whole idea of Chadash Asmanatayra, he used it in various contexts. The Chassam and he. Uh, he used it, for instance, which I didn't mention last time, against the Night of Yehuda, the previous great Gadol Hadar, the previous great halachic authority, uh, who the Chesam Sefer was kind of in his shadow for, in, during his early years in the rabbinate. Um, he, he, he opposes many Psaqim of the Night Yehuda. He opposes the whole methodology of the Night Yehuda. That's what Moshe Khanna's book is all about. Um, his incredible book, which I keep going back to and is, I use as one of the main sources for these episodes. Um, so one time the even, or maybe even more than one time, Chassam refers to Apsak of the Night of Yehuda himself as Chadash Asr Menatayrus. This is not against modernity; it's a it's a philosophy in halacha. One time the Chassam Sofer even uses the phrase against one of his own chidushim. He says this chidush that I wrote is is is, is incorrect in Chadash Min Menatayrus. So it was. It was it was used in a wide variety of contexts and it was pretty much never used by the Khsem Sefer himself as a general condemnation of the modern world or of modernity. That's been a much more recent development in the legacy of the Khsem Sefer, not by the Khsem Sefer himself, and it's very debatable if the Khsam Sefer himself would have ever used the phrase in such a context. But as, that, as I've said before, the Chesam has become much more of a symbol than a historic figure, and that's why there's a need for so much revisionism about him and his leadership in recent years. Um, so let's move on to his relationship with the Preshpur community. Um, just one more digression I saw in the news today, this morning, um, about a close-up picture of an ant's face. Um, And it's like this spooky, scary, terrifying picture. And it was supposed to be very scientific. And the photographer won all kinds of awards for taking this picture under a microscope. In the scientific photography world, this was supposed to be exciting nudes. What struck me as historically funny was that it was taken by a Lithuanian photographer. And I said, wow, the Jewish people lived in Lithuania for 800 years. And look at the, the cultural similarity that they still have. This, this going down into the nitty-gritty, going under a microscope to take a close-up picture of an ant's face just to see how scary and terrifying it looks. You pretty much can't get more litvak than that. Um, so that's just uh, in the news. So let's get to the uh, Chassam Seifer in Preshburg, the town, the yeshiva. Um, the Preschburg the ta- had a prestigious Jewish community, an ancient Jewish community. It was a couple of thousand uh, Jews at this point in history, talking about the early 1800s. Chassan Seifer gets appointed there in 1806 and remains there for the rest of his life, as is well known, for 33 years till he passes away in 1839. Um, so it was a relatively large Jewish community for Central Europe. It was obviously. If it would have been in Eastern Europe, it would be a relatively small community in Eastern Europe, but we're not in Eastern Europe, we're in Central Europe. And in Central Europe, this was considered a fairly large Jewish community. Um, and again, I used uh, Moe's for uh, my primary source, although I used other sources as well. Um, and, and Bratislava, which is it's known today, um, most will notice its proximity to Vienna. And um, it's right next to Vienna in Vienna is the center of modernity. It's the capital of the Habsburg Empire. It's it's not terribly far from Prague either, even though even today it's a few-hour drive, so it definitely is not next to Prague. It's quite distant from Prague, but in the general sense, they're both in the Habsburg Empire. And Prague and Vienna have this influence on spreading modernity throughout the Jewish world, especially in Central Europe. In fact, we could see um, how... Uh, Haskalah reform comes from Germany and and we see how it travels. You can actually trace it historically. It's quite interesting. Um, from Berg, places like Berlin, from places like Hamburg where the first temple was in 1819. And it goes through Vienna and Prague Two places like Pressburg and Budapest, and then travels from there to Galicia and Russia and beyond. There's actually a route that you can trace how the modern world and the Jewish Haskalah and the Jewish uh, uh, um, progression um, towards modernity spreads. And and Vienna and Prague serve as kind of like um, agents, uh, you know, as kind of like middlemen agents, as like mitavchim, we're saying Hebrew as like Leeds, these, uh, you know, they, they bring the Berlin uh, Jewish Haskalah values through there to places like Preschburg. And therefore, it, its proximity to Vienna plays a big role. Um, Preschburg is a modernizing Jewish community. Um, and if we look at the time that the Chesam arrives there in 1806, Press, the Preschburg Jewish community is going through a process of modernization. Um, many of the wealthy businessmen in Pressburg do business in Vienna, do business with non-Jews in this modern Habsburg capital. And therefore, they, they are influenced by the values of, of modernity. Remember the Edict of Tolerance um, by, um, by Habsburg Emperor Joseph in, has already been passed in 1782. 1806 is the peak of the Napoleonic Wars. So this is a, a very dynamic era. Um, Who is the previous rabbi before the Chesam Seifer arrives in 1806? So surprisingly, there was no rabbi for five years because of the infighting in the community between the traditionalists and the more modern trends, which was generally the more wealthy and people who controlled the kahal, controlled the Jewish community. Um, Who to appoint? What type of rabbi should they appoint? So for 5 years the position of rabbi is vacant. Before that it was Rabbi Meshulam Igra. Very very important and prestigious rabbi. He was from Poland, Galiziana, from Poland he had been imported. Um he uh He actually had a a halachic dispute with the Chassam Seifer. The Chassam Seifer, the the Galicianer, when he arrived in Preshburg, he noticed that the community shaved. They were all clean shaven. And the Chassam Seifer, who is a Frankfurt yaki, he has this position which defends the shaving of Jews in Germany. Now this is pre-modernity. The Chassam Seifer is saying this is a long-standing tradition of centuries from the time of the great the Rishayim of Ashkenaz. He wrote a tshuva about it. This is the custom in Germany. This is unlike Poland, and and shaving is the correct way to go. The Chazam Seifer has his long defense of shaving against the uh, the Rebbe igris critique of of Jews of Central Europe shaving because he came from Galicia. So it's a very fascinating idea. Chazam Seifer has this. Very, very strong defense of shaving, and he anchors it in centuries of tradition of uh, Ashkenazi Jewry. So he doesn't say that it's a modern thing. He says this is this is actually the traditional way to do it. So uh, I think, as far as I know, this Chassam Soifer's tshuva has been accused of being forged, and every people can't handle Chassam Today's people can't handle tshuva like this being written. Um, his traditional defense of shavings, so it's been a, it's been accused of being forged, and in a, in a if it can't be, but it, you know he definitely wrote it. Either way, Rav Moshele is buried right there next to Chassam Seifer. I mean, not, not, not next to Chassam Seifer. Chassam is buried next to him um, in the Bratislava underground uh, cemetery, but he's usually ignored because people usually go straight to Chassam Seifer. But Rav Omega's is right there. Um, he was the rabbi in Tisminitz in Galicia. Um, he was from Butchach, he had spent time in Brud in the brother of um, He was known as an opponent of the emerging Hasidic movement. And in 1794, Meshulam Igra goes west. Um, and he's the rabbi in Preshberg until his passing in 1802. He, when he was a, a, a rabbi in Galitz, he had a yeshiva, and everyone was a student of his, the Katsais, Hachais, and the Nesivas, the Marambanet. His nephew and student was Reb Naftali of Rupshitz. He was he was a, a very prominent rabbi of the next generation of Galician rabbis. Um, so he was the previous rabbi. And when he passed away in 1802, there began this dispute about who to appoint in his stead. And eventually the Chesam Seifer gets appointed in 1806. At the same time, there was this... Um, uh, Av is dying of the Pressburg rabbinical court for half a century. Reb Daniel Prustitz, um, he he uh, he was born in 1759 and passed away in 1846. And in 1796, um, he is appointed as the rivet of Pressburg. So this is more than a decade prior to the Chassam Seifer's arrival, and he remains there for the rest of his life. He passes away in 1846, which is seven years following the passing of the Chassam Seyfers. So he is there before him and rema- remains there after him and is there during the entire time period of the Chassam Seifer. It's kind of like a a Tommy Henrik uh, situation with Joe DiMaggio on the Yankees, but that's a different story. In any case, the two, Reb Danil Proustitz and the Chassam Seifer, were extremely close. They worked very well together. Um, Reb Daniel Prostitz turned down numerous rabbinical positions to stay on the Preshburg Besdin, and he's also buried next to him in that underground cave. Um, his descendants remained in Preshburg as Magidim almost until the war. Um, the Ksav Seifer, the Ksav Seyfer's son, delivered the main hesper for Reb Daniel upon his passing in 1846. So he's he's part of the story as well. He's, he's um, um, part of the traditional element of Preshburg um, who, who uh, is one of the causes for the Chsam getting uh, uh, for Chesam Seifer's success in his rabbinical career, because he's always there in the background, and the two are very close. Um, so ultimately, the Preshberg Kahila does hire the Chesam Seifer. They first considered Ramot HaBannet, who was the rabbi of Nicholsburg and the chief rabbi of Moravia. But the progressive elements of the community, who were the wealthy, elite businessmen, and they controlled the kahal, they wanted someone less well-known. Reh Mordechai was very well-known. Mordechai was also older. They wanted someone younger. They wanted someone who the kahal would be able to control. So they um, they, they said, we can control this young and unknown rabbi from Matusdorf, where the Chesam Sefer was rabbi for the previous eight years, um, and, the, and they and they said, he's young, he's not so well-known, so it'll be easy for for us to control him, he's not going to make too much traditional trouble, and we'll be able to move the community towards a progressive, more modern, more reform uh, 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 point. Now, they could not have read the situation more wrong, obviously, and history obviously would, would show that, that Ruch Sam was anything but that, um, I mean, he was definitely young. That was the only thing that they were accurate about. Everything else, they were they were wrong. He would not be easy to control, and he would not be excited about them uh, moving the community toward modern and progressive uh, direction. Um, but again, let's take the whole picture into context. You have these um, wealthy businessmen who have ties to Vienna, who are more progressive, who are more modernist elements in the community, who control the Kahal. Um, and they want changes in education. They want changes in the synagogue. Um, in the background, like I said, is the Edict of Tolerance that's been around for more than two decades. You have um, the 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 modernist modernist excuse me uh, elements of the Preshpur community is much less ideological than than Berlin. It's not about where the Jewish people should be fixed or where halacha should be fixed. It's more practical. This is the modern era. This is the changing times, this is the emancipation, this is the European Enlightenment, and it's just easier for us and our business and our wealth if we're more modern, if we dress more modern, if we can mix with the non-Jewish and integrate with the surrounding society more, and it's much more in a practical sense and external influences as opposed to an internal uh, Jewish uh, idea and, or ideology. This is also, like I said, during the times of the Napoleonic Wars, And um, and, and, and Austria is even occupied by Napoleon for a short period of time until Austria defeats them. And then Napoleon comes back shortly afterwards and some say for as rabbi of the community goes through. This and he's exiled from Pressburg, and he comes back, and he he gives a whole speech. There's a whole story about that as well. Perhaps we'll get to it another time. since so his early years in Pressburg, immediately before his arrival, and during his first years of being there is quite exciting in the sense that um, that uh, that uh, the the uh, the Nap- Napoleonic Wars are taking place with all the Enlightenment activity and the. The um, the disturbances to the stability of the traditional community are concerned. Um, so he has these conflicts with the kahal because they have us very clear where they want the community to be headed, and they think that the chassam seifer will be complicit, being that he's young and unknown and inexperienced, as far as their perspective is. Which, like I said, would ultimately be proven incorrect. Um, so the two are at odds. The two are at conflict the there's an attempt to open a Haskalah school in 1810 and 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 the Khsam Sefer is able to block it initially but then it successfully does open a decade later in 1820 and on the grounds of that school a reformist minion opens. So on the Khzam Sefer is seen as the ultimate um fighter for tradition, for orthodoxy, against reform, against change, and yet in his own community he was unsuccessful at blocking it. Um, and, and this has to be understood as part of the story, because a lot of what the Chesam battles towards larger society, in the tshuvas that he wrote, in the leadership positions that he took for the larger Jewish community of Central Europe, much of it reflected his own struggles within his own community. Um, in 1826, there's an att- again, 1826 is 20 years after the Chassam Seifer had arrived in Pressburg. It's He's already world-renowned. He has this yeshiva of hundreds of students. He's world-renowned. He's been asked, halachic tshuv around the whole Central Europe and Germany and Hungary and everywhere. And yet, the community is still in the control of the kahal, which is wealthy, modernist, reformist, and they try to shut down the Chesam Seifer's yeshiva in 1826. And they try to drive him out of town and remove him from a rabbinical position. They go to the government and it goes back and forth with the local government. And they're unsuccessful in their attempt. And the Seifer does stay in town and is able to keep his yeshiva open. But it's a big struggle. The actually writes in a letter, very interesting, that uh, someone says, you know, you know you, you're able to sit in your, towards the end of his life, this letter is uh, much later, uh, late 1830s, he said, you sit in your position as a king uh, in Preshburg. such respect that you have from your community, and from your yeshiva, and from your students. And he writes there, and he bemoans in this letter, he said, you think I look like a king in my later years now, but you don't know all the heartache and the struggles that I went through to get there. Um, because eventually much of the kahal, the Chassam is able to influence much of the kahal to be on his side, and more traditionalist elements, and, and uh, more of his people um, get voted onto the kahal board, and things like that happen. Very often it's the some seifer's students who are able to be his warriors out there in the streets. So there's the yeshiva, and there's the community, and there's a conflict between the two, because the students are much more loyal to him. So that's an interesting dynamic as well, in the educational sense, that there's the community. The yeshiva, which is not exactly part of the community, he's the head of both. The students are more loyal to him than the community. Um, one of the interesting stories is, uh, is, is uh, the, again, worthy of another episode. The long, decades-long dispute between the Chesam and his arch-rival, the reformist Rabbi Aaron Churin. Uh, fascinating figure, and and the the arch rival, the exact opposite of the Chassam Seifer. He was a reformer and a, a um, and a, um, a student of the Native Yehuda, and uh, and he um, he in the in, in Seifer engaged in this long battle of polemics for years, for over twenty something years um, against each other and their positions. He was the rabbi in Arad in Transylvania. Uh, for 55 years or so. And, um, and he was responsible for a lot of the new reformist positions in the Austro-Hungarian Empire during that time. And Aaron Khuren, at one point, visits Preshberg, visits headquarters of the Khsam Seifer. And the Khsam students from the yeshiva go out and demonstrate against him. They even threw things at him. Supposedly, they even threw rocks at him. Um, and there was a rumor in 1826, when the community tried removing the Chesam Seifer from the position, but who would replace him? What was the rumor? It's not clear if it was a true rumor, but at least there was a rumor going around like that. Who is going to replace him? The same Aaron Khurin. So this this dynamic is taking place within Pressburg itself, and I keep on emphasizing it because, like I said, it's important to understand what the Seifer was dealing with in his local community in Pressburg to be able to understand what he was dealing with on the world stage as well, because very often it was a reflection of that. Um, the uh and, and it has has an influence on his outlook and his and his uh leadership position over the course of his rabbinical career. Um so that is a little bit about Preshberg and his uh, position there. We'll end with that at th- this stage of the uh of the episode. We're gonna have to continue the coming episodes of the series on the Khsam Cyfer um will be about his youth in Frankfurt. It will be about um the development of the Ksam Cyfer and how uh, in his later years how he changed the method of his battles against reform, against change, and to strengthen tradition. He had different methods of doing it over the course of his career, um, which is fascinating to trace it, uh, to, to look around that he was a brilliant man and he understood real the real responsibility of leadership and how he used different methods at different times to be able to strengthen the orthodox and traditional world. And he was quite successful, actually, at uh, at what he did. So I want to examine all that and more in the next few episodes. And looking forward to uh, hearing from you, feedback and sponsorship uh, opportunities, which are available. And this is Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, you can reach me at Yehuda at yehudigabber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History, Spons- Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.